No, I'm glad you're with us this morning. Um, if you haven't been with us the last two weeks, we did Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 2 last week, and this week we'll be in Philippians chapter 3, and then next week we will conclude in Philippians chapter 4. Unfortunately, we, um, it's just a four-part series, so I don't have time to get through all of the verses, um, and so today we will begin in verse 10. But the title of this morning's message is, I would rather have Jesus. I'd rather have Jesus. Uh, if you've been in my youth group or you know me at all, I love the would you rather type questions. You know, would you rather go to Chipotle or would you rather go to Moe's? If you said Moe's to that, you can leave now, all right? <laughs> and then I like to increase the stakes. You know, would you rather sing the national anthem at the Super Bowl or would you rather bungee jump from the Grand Canyon? All right? If we could twist it a little bit and get the spiritual, in a sense, to drive home the point of the message. Would you rather have the money of Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos and be able to spend it on your houses, your cars, an unlimited amount of things and be able to give it away and not have Christ? Or would you rather struggle week to week, um, build a bill and live in maybe a little bit of debt and frustration for the rest of your life, but instead have Jesus? Would you rather have the power of the president or a world leader, a politician, where you could make you know, your own rules, your own laws, and you could have the power of influence over things and not have Jesus? Or would you rather live here and go to Emmanuel Church and have maybe be a deacon or a leader of a women's ministry and have very little power for the rest of your life, but have Jesus along the way? If you're a teenager, would you rather... I don't even know what the latest iPhone is there. I would offer you the latest iPhone out there. You got your AirPods, um, the freshest shoes out of, you know, Foot Locker. Would you rather have that and not have Christ? But I could trade you a pair of Goodwill shoes, a pair of five below headphones, and a nice flip phone. Um, but you have Jesus instead. What would you rather have? For some of us, that probably raised through our mind. It's like, well, you think about what you could do with position of power, what you could do with money, how nice you would look in them fresh kicks. But if you didn't have Jesus, would it be worth it? It's not that you can't have those things and not have Jesus, but if it came down to it, of which would you rather have, what are you taking? And so that's the premise of this morning's message. I'd rather have Jesus. Um, we're not going to get to it next week, but Paul says in Philippians 4, he says, I learned what it was like to be content to have nothing and to be content with having a lot. Why? Because in it, I had Christ that was strengthening me. That I would rather, he would rather have Christ and his possessions and the weight of who Christ is than anything else. And so that's really what I want to drive home this morning is this, is do we treasure Christ? Do we honor Christ? Do we understand his infinite value and worth? And do we treasure it above all else? Is it the thing that you can take everything else away? You can take my job, my fame, my success, my position, but in the end, if I have Jesus... I have enough. What did Derek pray this morning? That it is enough for life and godliness. Do we treasure it in such a way that it is all that we need? Paul, and we're not going to cover it um, extensively, but I want to recap it. Paul in the, opens Philippians chapter 3 with this. He says, If anyone thinks that he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's basically saying, If anyone has a reason to boast, if anyone can put a name on a status and to elevate themselves, he says, I do. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law of Pharisee as for zeal, I persecuted the church as for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. 
But whatever was my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. I consider them dung. I consider them a pile of garbage so that I may gain Christ. And what Paul is saying, I don't care about where where I once stood. I don't care about the power and the influence and the position that I once had. I consider them all as garbage compared to what I have gained in Christ. And so Paul traded in something. Paul exchanged something. Paul laid down something. And in return, what he found out that he actually didn't lose anything at all, but he actually gained. So Father, as we come here this morning, we want to treasure you. We want to adore you. We want to see your worth and your value, Father God, and it will be the thing that we strive after, that we run after, and the thing that we cling to. Father, we'd rather have you more than anything else. We want to see you, God, in that way. That we would understand the depths, the width, the height, and the length, and the breadth of your love, God. And that it would be sufficient and enough for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul continues on in verse 10, and that's where we'll start. I'm going to read verses 10 and 11 first. It says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Paul wants to know Jesus, right? His ambition, his desire, his goal, his focus, his priority, however you want to label it. Paul wants to know Jesus. He's locked in. He's not deviating from it. And this, so Paul says he wants to know two things. He wants to know the participation of his sufferings and the power of his resurrections. And this word know here is not just, well, I heard that Alaska was really nice and I've known a lot of people that have gone there and they've told me it and I've seen the pictures online and Alaska just looks really beautiful and I just know that it'll be a great vacation. This know here is I have been to Alaska and I have seen the mountaintops and I have seen the snow and I have seen the wildlife and I have beheld its beauty and with my five senses I have experienced Alaska and so therefore I know what it is. And so Paul here is not talking about the former know, he's talking about that know, that experience, that he has experienced Christ, that he wants to know Christ in that way to where all of his senses are engaged and it's an intimate relationship where he has a personal first-hand experience himself with Jesus. He doesn't want his parents' faith. He doesn't want Pastor Ryan's faith. He doesn't want Pastor Will's faith. He wants to know Jesus in a way where it's personal for him, that it's intimate for him, and where he experiences it on his own. He wants to get acquainted with God in that way. And there are two ways, and the first one we'll talk about is that Paul wants to participate or know God, another verse says, in the fellowship of his sufferings. And if we go back to last week, which first I must also say, quick side note, thank you, Emmanuel Church. Pastor Will, Jim, if you ever preach and you have a favorite snack, all you got to do is talk about it being a shortage at home and you'll receive plenty of Oreos. <laughs> I have received so many Oreos this week, we are well stocked and equipped um, with Oreos. But anyways, as we talked last week, we talked about Christ's suffering. And we talked about Christ's suffering was not only, it was to the cross. He was obedient unto death, that he was humiliated, shamed for your sake. And Paul's writing here and saying, I want to know Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings. It's like, Paul, do you know what you're asking for? Do you understand the weight of the thing that you're requesting here? And Paul, in a sense, we're not to get this confused, Paul's not just begging to go to the cross and to run up there himself and to be nailed to the cross and say, you know, nail me the way that Jesus did so I can know Jesus in the fellowship of his sufferings. He's saying this. He's saying, just as Jesus laid himself aside, 
Just as Jesus lived selfishly for others, just as Jesus poured himself out for the sake of others, just as Jesus emptied himself for the benefits of others, Paul is saying, I want to know Jesus like that. I want to die to myself. I want to lay myself down. I want to get out of the way for the benefit and the sake of others. Multiple times in his letters, he says this, I want to be poured out like a drink offering. And I want to suffer in that sense. I want to lay myself aside. Just as Jesus did not consider it a quality with God, that he submitted himself to the Father's plan, Paul is saying, I want to die in the same way. And I want to be submitted to the Father's plan in the same way. And this isn't a new thought. This isn't something that was original to Paul. Jesus says this in Luke 9. He says, if you want to be my follower, right, if you want to identify with me, if you want to be serious about this, you want to have a relationship, right, and you want to know me, Jesus says this, you must deny your, right, is that's a denial of self, that it's a death to self, that the Christian walk is one that first starts with death. It's choosing to lay aside myself, what I want, what I see, how I want to live life, right? I'm laying aside my priorities. I am dying to myself, in a sense that I am deferring, right? Because it's not only that I die to myself, that let alone is not enough. It's that I must pick up his cross and follow him, right? And so it's this death to myself of how I would choose to do things, of my priorities. And it's a deferring and a surrender and saying, listen, Lord, I'm setting that aside and I'm picking up your cross and I'm deferring to you. And now you're the one, in a sense, calling the shots. You're the one that's now seated on the throne and how I am in my marriage, how I am at home, how I am to my friends, to my neighbors. Lord, it's now Christ in me. It's no longer I that live, but Christ in me. It's this death to self. And Paul is saying, that's what he's saying, when I want to fellowship with his sufferings, I want to die to myself in those same ways. You see, Paul here was making a transaction. He was making an exchange that he was losing something, but in return, he was gaining something else. Bryce has started kindergarten, and he's learning a little bit of the, you know, recess, after lunch, trading, bartering deal of toys and supplies, right? And so right now, Bryce really... Um, appreciates these things called Beyblades, so like little tops, basically, for if you don't know what they are, they just spin and they fight each other, and it's just like spinning tops. Um, and so Bryce really is into those. And so the other day, he comes home with a brand new Beyblade. And mom asks him, he's like, well, where'd you get that? And he says, well, I traded, uh, I traded Matthew for it. You traded Matthew for it? What'd you trade him? Oh, I traded him a Pokemon card, all right? Mel, knowing full well he didn't have a Pokemon card, I was like, well, where did you get a Pokemon card? He says, oh, well, some girl in second grade gave it to me, right? <laughs> so my, I'm pretty proud of him, right? The kindergarten took a free Pokemon card, right, that had to be of worth one penny and exchange it for a $10 toy in exchange, right, in return. And so outside of being proud and being like, all right, that's some good business transactions. I like where you're headed, right? Mel had to have a talk about him, you know, what is worthy of a fair exchange here and what's a fair transaction. And so, you know what, it's probably likely that uh, Matthew's parents wouldn't appreciate that. Maybe they want their $10 toy that they have bought in their son back. And why do I say that story? Because if we take a look at it, right, and if we look at it from this angle, that what we get in knowing Christ and what we get in exchange and what we get in that transaction, come on, yeah. right? I get to trade in my sin, my brokenness, my shame, and my fear, and I get to gain Christ, Right? I get to trade in insecurity and doubt and wonder, and I get the love of God. Right? Instead of my, my anxieties and my stress and my worries and all these obligations, I get the peace that passes all understanding. Right? And so I get to lay those things down and gain Christ. And so when we look at it, we wrestle sometimes, right? Die to self, Christ. Die to self, Christ. I want to do what I want to do. But come on. Like, what do we get in exchange? We get to gain Christ and to know him. And that experience is far outweighs anything in return that we would get on our own. 
So would we choose this morning, right? Just as Paul said, I lay everything down. I count that all as garbage and rubbish compared to knowing Christ, right? That what I gain in him and what is added to my life is far surpasses anything else. Paul also says this, I want to know the power of his resurrection. And then he says at the end, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And so here Paul makes an aim and a claim that this is just as Jesus was, Jesus, Jesus was resurrected and seated at the right hand of the Father, Paul was saying, I want to attain to that, that I want to be seated, that I want to reign and I want to rule and I want to live with Christ in heaven. And he wants that union, that fellowship, that connection. Just as Christ was seated at the right hand, he wants that. And so Paul's attaining to the resurrection here. Not something that he's going to grasp or obtain here in this life, but he's looking forward, he's looking onward, he's looking heaven bound to the thing to which he might attain. I read, I found a hymn um, that I had never heard before. It was written by a lady named Rhea Miller, and her father was an alcoholic, her mother a devoted Christian. And at the age of 16, finally, her mother's faith and persistence and prayer broke through, and her father came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, broken free of alcoholism, then went on to train to be a pastor um, in upstate New York. And she would find him often walking throughout the day saying, you know, I'd rather have Jesus than my former life. I'd rather have Jesus than any drink of alcohol. I'd rather have Jesus than any wealth. And so she wrote this hymn. This is the moments where I wish that I could sing because it would come across better, but for your sakes, I'll read it. <laughs> I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name. He's, the fa he's fairer than the lilies of rarest bloom. He's sweeter than any hum or honey from out of the, co the comb. He's all that my hungering spirit needs. I'd rather have Jesus and let him lead. And it repeats the chorus. Then to be a king of vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway, I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. And so when we give our lives for the sake of the gospel, when it comes to knowing Jesus, come on, that's a love, a purpose, a desire, and a nourishment that lasts. And so we start this morning by saying, God, we want to know you. We want to experience you. That it's, and that taste that is so, that's sweeter than anything else. And that when we know you and we come to that experience with you, that we'd say, I'd rather have you than anything else because anything else can't even touch the things that you can touch and you can't reach the things that you can reach. I want the God that all of creation testifies about, the one that says that he knows every star in the sky that knows the hairs on my head, that says that all of creation is revealing his majesty. I want that one, the one that sent his son to lay down his life, the God who says, this is my command, this is my desire, not to achieve and it will be done, but Christ in me. I'd rather have Jesus. And so when I first read it and you think of Paul and who it is that's saying this, I was like, come on, Paul. Like, you've planted churches, you know, you've led thousands to the Lord. You're in prison for Christ. 
And when he's saying, I want to know Jesus that way, and I want to know Jesus more, and I want to obtain to more, you look at your life and you're like, whew, <laughs> what do I have to offer? But Paul goes on in verse 12 and says this, not that I have already obtained this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And so Paul makes it very clear here that he has not already obtained perfection, right? Paul hasn't arrived at the end goal or the end desire. He hasn't reached the prize yet. He hasn't reached the place to where he is content. He says, actually, I am pressing on that the prize is not yet attained. And so here we see something, right? That Paul was still human. Paul still experienced hardship, he experienced difficulties, he experienced pain, he experienced a sin in his life that he just hadn't yet reached completion, right? Second Corinthians says this, right? Paul says, I prayed to God three times that something would be taken away from me, and yet it was not. But now I boast in my weakness, right? Because Christ and the grace of God is sufficient in that. And so I can raise my hand to that, right? Because I can admit that I have not yet attained it. I have not yet reached it. I still have shortcomings. I still have flaws. I still have difficulties. I still have trials. And I still have a lot of mess in my life. With that, I can identify with Paul and say, yep, I have not attained it yet, God. I haven't reached it yet. I'm not there yet. I still get frustrated. I still get worried. still have doubts. I still have things to accomplish, to achieve, to do. I can say, yeah, I'm there. But also, what does Paul say? I press on. I move on. I strain on. And here, Paul continues. He starts something what's, in basically a sense, Olympic terms, right? And if you think of the Olympics in those days, a lot of running, a running of a race, and he's saying there's still laps to go. There's still a gold medal to be a crowned with. And I press on. I charge on. I run on. And I am moving forward to obtain the prize. And so why is Paul running? Why is Paul straining? And some of those times, those words and those terms freak us out a little bit, right? Because, you know, am I to press on? Am I to strive? Am I to strain? That sounds like works, Pastor Ryan, you know? And I know it's not about works. It's about grace. And how do I balance those two, you know? Um, Another place in chapter two, he says, you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's like, Paul, what are you talking about? You know, you're pressing on, you're striving, you're stressing, but you also tell me that my works achieve nothing and it's by the grace of God. But listen, Paul can't write and say that he wants to share in the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ um, without a cause, without a motivation. Because guess what? On your own desire and your own wishes, guess what? You're not willing to participate in the sufferings of Christ. You're going to be willing to do the deeds of the flesh. And so there's a cause behind what motivates Paul. Why does Paul want to know Christ? Why does he desire to know the sufferings? Why does he can't wait for the resurrection of the dead? You see it in the latter part of chapter 12. It says this, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. It's one where the NIV, I don't think, captures it in the way that I want it to be captured. Um, Another version, hopefully maybe one of your versions says this, I press on to take hold, to be apprehended, to apprehend the things by which Christ has apprehended me. The ESV says this, I press on because Christ has made me his own. And I like that, because why? What's the cause? What's the motivation? Why is Paul desiring this? Why is Paul seeking this? Why is Paul running after this? The cause is this, is that Christ has apprehended him. Christ has laid, has snatched him. He has taken him, right? That word apprehended is lambano, right? Which, in a sense, means this. Think picture a thief going into a store and snatching and taking something that doesn't belong to them. They have seized something that is not theirs. 
And that's the same terminology Paul here is using to this, is that Christ has apprehended him. And when you think about that, you think about where you were before you knew Christ, or you think about the darkness in which you lived in, or the sin in which you wrestled with and you struggled with, and you think about that Christ has come and he has seized you and he has snatched you and he has taken you as a possession of his own. That he has rescued you from the kingdom of darkness and brought you into his light. Right? And he's apprehended you. He has taken you as his possession, saying, this one belongs to me. I think about where I was before Christ and the things that I was doing and the lifestyles that I was living and the patterns and the behaviors and just the stink and the stench of my life. But then I think about the grace of God that at the age of 17 that gripped my heart and that grasped my heart and apprehended me and stole me from the enemy's hand and brought me into the family of God. Right? We love because he first loved us. We have the ability and the capacity and the knowledge to love. Why? Because we have first seen his love. Because he is love and he has demonstrated his love on the work of the cross. And that is the motivation. That is the cause. That is the thing that stirs Paul. He's not trying to obtain God's love. He's not trying to win God's grace. He's not trying to outdo his fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord and saying, you know what, here's the five steps and this is how I'm going to achieve my goal. No, he's saying the grace that was apprehended me, the grace that saved me, the grace that redeemed me is now the cause and the motivation behind my wanting to know. Because I want to know the God that has made me his possession, that has brought me into his family, that has deposited his Holy Spirit in me. And that stirs me on. Because I've seen his love, I have tasted it, and Paul says, I want to know more. There's more to know. There's a depth of God that he wasn't going to mind. So he says, I press on and I continue on being stirred by God's love. So in your days of doubt, in your days where you might be walking away or your days where you feel like you don't got a tight grip on God and you feel like you might be slipping through your hands, remember that he has apprehended you and that his grip is on you and that he's got you safe and secure and he's made you his possession. If you think of Paul's story, right, Paul was persecuting Christians. He was hating on Christ and not believing in him and persecuting those that believed in Christ. And he was riding on a donkey on a road and Christ blinds him, Right? and apprehends him, and snatches him, and makes him. I've said this before. Um, you know what Paul doesn't say? Oh, come on, God, why'd you do that? He's not mad at God. He's not angry at God. Come on, God, you know? He says, thank you, God, that you apprehended me. Thank you, God, that you rescued me from darkness, and you have saved me, and you have delivered me, right? And you seized me for your own, and now you've given me a calling to share your gospel and spread it to the Jews and to the Gentiles and to share in your fellowship. One way I thought to illustrate this is if you're um, unfamiliar with John Newton. John Newton um, was a Brit that lived in the 1700s and got his career starting working on ships. Uh, Everything was transferred through sailing. It wasn't like they had um, vehicles or anything like that. And so the ships that he worked on transported slaves. He worked on um, slave trading ships and he would take the voyage um, across and deliver slaves to countries where that was going on. And at some point along that way, he came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that Christ apprehended him, and he confessed his faith and became a Christian. And he'll t- he says it himself that for the next five, six years, that he still continued in his line of work. He still continued um, part of the slave trade until finally the conviction of the Holy Spirit came upon him, and he said, you know what, this is not the hand of God, and this is not what Christ is like. And he finally um, laid that down, 
and became a pastor, a preacher, traveling even here to the United States, preaching the gospel. Um, until later in life, he returned home to Britain, and he went to work with William Wilberforce and to lead, to partake in um, the abolition of slavery, fighting the British Parliament for um, outlawing it and making it illegal. And you probably best know him from writing the song Amazing Grace. Um, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, right? I once was lost, but now I'm found. Another line says, I was blind, but now I see. And it was why? Because the grace of God, the mercy of God, it apprehended John Newton, and he understood the grace of God, and he understood how amazing it was. And because of that grace, because his eyes were opened, because his heart could now see, guess what? He now fought against the very thing in which he made his career early on. And it wasn't to earn God's forgiveness. It wasn't because he was trying to repay something or trying to outdo his previous actions. No, it was because he understood the grace and the knowledge of God and he understood the amazing grace that was afforded to him that stirred him and caused him into action. And so our striving, our running the race, our effort to attain the prize is not to earn God's favor and love, but it's in response to what he has done for us. I would argue that if you're having a hard time being motivated, energized, or equipped and being stirred toward that, not to work up in your own effort and your own frustration and try to stir it up on your own to try to motivate yourself and be better for God and do right for God and to love God more, I would petition you to take a look at the cross and the finished work of Christ and to read your Bible and to understand his, his beauty and to treasure him in your own heart and what he has done for you and realize where you are and what your sins have done and what he has rescued you from. And as you treasure that and as you store that in your heart and as you think and dwell upon the love of Christ, and then what will stir in you is the passion and desire to know your Father. Paul continues on, and he presses it just a little bit further. Brothers and sisters, he says, once again, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. I have not attained the thing to which I am striving, but one thing I do... Right? One thing I do. Paul's life motto, right? Summed up right here. The one thing that he does, his purpose, his intent, it echoes that of what David says in the 27th Psalm, right? The one thing that David seeks, the one thing that David desires, the one wish that he had was what? To dwell in the house of the Lord, to dwell in the presence of the Lord. Paul's wish and ambition is this. The one thing that I do, right? His life motto is this. I forget what is behind and I strain forward to what is ahead. We need to take a moment and we think about all the things, right, that we focus on, all the things that we put energy towards, all the things that we devote ourselves and commit ourselves to, our jobs, our family, our children, our finances, and all the things that seek to be a priority and to choke out this. But let us this morning focus on this, the one thing that we should do, the one thing that we need to do is forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what is ahead, to dwelling and living in the presence of the Lord. What does Jesus say in Matthew 6? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all of these things will be added unto you. What's the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You see, following Christ and living the Christian life is very focused on this, is that keeping God at the front and center, that making him the preeminent one and keeping him first. And, that if you, and the promise is this, is that if you seek his righteousness, right, all the other things that you worry about, your family, your finances, your job, and all of that, guess what? He'll rightly prioritize them and he'll add them unto you in appropriate measures and levels. 
right? It's not that those things are bad. It's not wrong to have a family. It's not wrong to have a job. Actually, it's God's command that you would have both. But they are not to be the one thing to which you seek and to live for. And so Paul says this, if there's one thing that I do and there's one thing that I know, I forget what is behind and I strain towards what is ahead. Paul here is not saying um, that you just never remember the past. He's accounting earlier to where he has been apprehended by Christ and he's remembering his own salvation experience. There's multiple times in the Bible where it says they raised an Ebenezer or they raised a statue to commemorate or to remember what Christ has done in their life. So it's not a thing where we never look back or we never, um, and to be honest, things of the past are never going to be completely ever just wiped out or erased from our memory. What Paul's saying here is this, is that the past and the actions of the past and the things of the past and my success and my Christian success of the past plays no part, right? It has no effect. It's not going to stop me. It's not going to hinder me. It's not going to keep me from going to where I need to go. John Piper said this, the point is not never look back. The point is only look back for the sake of pressing forward. Never substitute nostalgia for hope. Memories of success can make you smug and self-satisfied. Memories of failure can make you hopeless and paralyzed in your pursuit of God. Never look back like that. Give humble thanks for successes, make humble confessions for failure, then then turn to the future and go hard after God. And so Paul's saying, I don't look back on all my Christian successes. I don't look back on the churches that I've planted and how many people I have led to the Lord and all the sufferings that I've taken for Christ. I don't, I can, I don't hold on to them. I don't treasure them as my hope for now. He's saying, I'm pressing forward. There's more in this walk with the Lord. Right. And he's saying, I don't remember my former sins and I don't remember how I once persecuted Christians and I once tried to have them annihilated. You know, I'm not living in the shame or the condemnation of what I once was. I'm living now in the present, that I am a new creation in Christ, and I have a new calling and a new family, and I press on towards that. And so as brothers and sisters in the Lord, wherever that is, you know, maybe you've rested on your laurels a little bit or what you have achieved or where you have come, or maybe you think for some reason that you have arrived. I point you to the person of Paul and say, you know what, when you reach that level and you've achieved as much as that has, then maybe reconsider that position. But until then, press on. For those of us that think that we can't go forward because we're living in some past sin or we're thinking that something from our past hinders us or limits us or that God is not going to do something in us because of something that we may have once done, may we forget it and may we receive the forgiveness of Christ and may we be free from that condemnation and walk forward. Paul's unrelenting. Um, He's used the words press on, strain. And so in verse, verse 14, if you look at it, it says this, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Once again, he's using this Olympic, this track, this athletic verbiage and saying, I'm not stopping. The race isn't over. There's no obstacle that's going to stop me or prevent me from finishing the race. Ethan, you run the mile, right? What good is it to have three great laps and have your best time in three laps and say, yeah, you know what? I run a good race and I'm done, right? Does you nothing, right? You got a fourth lap to run, right? You got a you got a race to finish. And that's what Paul's saying here. i got to keep going. Why? To win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. 
Another verse says to receive the calling of the upward reward of Christ. And this here is not a calling in the sense of a vocational calling or a call to ministry or a call to a mission field. It's a calling similar to that of once you have won the race and once you have finished the race, that the, the one that sits above calls you to the podium and calls you to the medal stand and is going to give you your medal. Paul says it in 1 Timothy, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Why do we run the race? Because our Father is seated, and he is just waiting to crown us. What do we gain? Him. We gain him. Another story about my kids. Um, On Sunday mornings and the mornings that I'm not preaching, they like to fight and argue over who gets to ride in dad's van to church. I know, a luxury, if you've ever seen the thing. (laughs) And it's kind of funny, you get the motives and they start to come out and your kids, Bryce likes to go with dad because (laughs) Bryce knows that we might stop at Dunkin' Donuts or we might stop at Walgreens or we might stop by the coffee shop and he might get a little snack or something to eat or he knows that dad might get a little busy and I might have to give him my phone and let him watch a little bit of a show. So Bryce's primary motivation or cause of wanting to come with dad is what he can get as far as the reward in return. Uh, Lou sometimes just likes to go along for the ride, right? She just likes to, you know, be in the car, get here at church, and to have the time um, with dad. Not that Bryce doesn't, but you get it, they're kids. Um, And so I think that's what Paul's saying here is this, is what's the prize, what's the reward? We don't run the Christian life so that way we can get money, fame, success, or that we can make it rich or all the problems can go away. What? We do it so we can be in the car with him and we can have the time with him and that's the reward and that's what we gain is our relationship in the community and the fellowship with Christ, our Savior. And so that's why Paul's running and that's what he's aiming for, that the one day that his father's going to look down and say, well done, good and faithful servant, and I know you. Look, sometimes it is a race. Sometimes it feels like we're being lapped. Sometimes we feel dehydrated like we just want to give up or we want to quit or we want to call it. Sometimes we take our punches and we have our lumps. But listen, we look forward to the day where the righteous judge will crown us with his eternal righteousness and we make that final exchange where we lay down our imperfection, our flaws in this weakened vessel to gain eternal life with him. And we close by looking at verse 15. All of us who are mature should take a such view of these things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make it clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already obtained. And Paul's saying here is that the mature Christian, the spiritually mature, won't ever think to themselves that they have arrived or they have attained or they have achieved perfection. He's basically saying if you think that you're the perfect Christian, then God will reveal to you that you aren't perfect. (laughs) But spiritual maturity is a hallmark of a growing Christian. What does Hebrews 6 say? That we must pass on from the elementary doctrines. Corinthians says that we must get off the spiritual milk, spiritual milk and onto the meat. Why? Because there are gems and depths to be found in Christ. And so I just want to give, um, in conclusion, a couple signs or things to guard against um, in a sense of false maturity. 
because sometimes we think that we have arrived or sometimes we do think that, you know, we're at a different level. And false maturity looks like this. False maturity does a lot of time judging others instead of loving others. True maturity desires to serve, to love, and to have others reach the depths and the knowledge of where you're at. False maturity looks and says, well, I'm here, they're there, and I'm a more mature Christian. <laughs> no, no, no. Right? A mature Christian says, I want to share the love and the knowledge and the, and, what, and the experience that God has, and I want others to experience it also. And so I'm not judging them, I'm not shaming them, I'm not condemning them. I am trying to pour into them what I have attained or what I have, where I have gone. And I'm more focused and fixed on where I need to go and what I need to do in my life that I don't have time to necessarily worry about what Will's doing in his. Too often we think, you know, because maybe I don't wrestle with this or I don't have that or I don't have this struggle in the faith or this isn't a personal issue for me um, and I have something that others may lack that I have reached a higher peak. But if your desire is not to see others reach that peak, then I would argue that you have a false sense of maturity. Because the second sign is that you're filled with pride, you know? You're proud of yourself and what you have accomplished and what you have done. And you fail to recognize that it is Christ and the grace of God afforded to you and it is his work in you, right? Pride goes before the fall, but God gives grace to those that are humble. Lastly, another sign of false maturity, I call it the broken record syndrome. Stuck on repeats, going over the same things, the same things. Why? Because they haven't spent the time with the Lord to learn or to know anything else. And so they keep going back to that one experience or the moment that they did have. I think a good example of this, of someone that has reached um, maturity and someone that has, is a good example. I always think of Bill Oakley and Joyce Oakley. Uh, I think of you guys that at an age where you could have retired, called it quits, um, you know what, enjoyed your grandkids and stayed at home and you know, traveled and done whatever. You have served God and his family here amazingly well. And you haven't rested and you haven't been content and you strive and you press on and you've set that example. I always argue with Mel that it's like if there was a record of attendance at Emmanuel Church and their events, I think the Oakleys would have to come near the top. And I say that and I use them because guess what? There's no spot in Christianity where you hit the retirement button and that you quit and you pack it in and say, all right, I'm just waiting now. I've done what I need to do. No. Think of all that Paul had achieved. Think of all that he had suffered and all that he had done. He says, listen, I want to press on. I want to know more. I want to see more of God. And those people like that, they get the reward of gaining and knowing him and understanding him in that way. So as we close, I'd like to pray that hymn over you just one more time. Father, we'd rather have Jesus. We'd rather have you more than silver or gold. We'd rather have you than riches untold. We'd rather have you than houses or land. Father, we ask to be led by your nail-pierced hands. We'd rather have you than man's applause. We'd rather be faithful to your dear cause. We'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. Lord, we want to be true to your holy name. You're fairer than lilies of rarest bloom, sweeter than honey from out of the coon. He's all, you're all that my hungering spirit needs. We'd rather have you and let you lead. Father, you far surpass anything that we know or could experience here on this earth. Father, you are the thing that satisfies. 
Ecclesiastes says that we were created with eternity in our hearts. You are the one that nourishes us. You are the bread that doesn't leave us hungry. You are the water that doesn't cause us to thirst for more. Father, I thank you. You know exactly what we need. And Lord, your promise is that if we seek you first, if we place you first, if we run after you, if we strain and we press on God to knowing you, Father, that you'll take care of the rest and that you'll provide in that way. So Father, as we live this week, let our hearts say we'd rather have Jesus and let us understand the treasure of what it is to know you and to see you for who you are and all of your value. All of the body said, amen.